Welcome everybody and thank you for coming to the photo book book group and excitingly we're doing this on a Saturday which might be a new thing for us. Um, I want to go through a few housekeeping things and I'm taking an idea from India Beale who was our guest last photo book book group and she started like this which was to ask everyone uh, who's on the call to take out their phone and if you are not following to please consider following David, the ICP, MIT Press, Thames and Hudson and myself on our social media platforms. And it is a way in which you support the education that we're providing. This is a free service and my work is all about amplifying contemporary photography. So we would really appreciate that. We're gonna start there. That just takes a moment. Um, I'd also encourage you to sign up for my newsletter which is something that amplifies international photography uh, as well. And in terms of where we are, I'm in an active studio. I have artisans around me. I hope that the noise level's low. I'm going to ask everyone to stay muted for now. And the way that we do this is a conversation. It's unscripted, but we leave plenty of time for um, questions and answers. And I wanted to introduce my co-host, Deb Hemley, who is our media coordinator. She will be monitoring the chat and we can ask you, you could put questions in chat. We have the raise your hand function. And when we get to questions and answers, it's nice if you can ask it. So we, will, we would like you to do that in an order where we can unmute and, and do that. Um, We've also got Matilda Bascaldi, who's our intern who came via the museum school and Tufts, came last summer and we're not letting her go. So that's who you're hearing from on this side. And I'm just going to introduce uh, our guest and begin. So I am honored and okay, slightly intimidated to host David Campany to discuss what he has re referred to as his idiosyncratic little book on photographs. Frankly, and with all due respect, that's a big fat lie. And in my humble opinion, it is analogous to referring to a hike of Mount Everest like a walk in the park. While I agree this book is idiosyncratic, its modest size belies its outsized impact. Here he has woven a bilingual manifesto in text and image on the slippery slope of the medium we call photography. On Photographs is David Campany's ninth book on photography. His award-winning writing appears in over 200 essays for monographs and museums. He recently curated the Three City Biennale Fotografie 2020 in Germany. And as the managing director of programs at the International Center of Photography in New York, a position he began this time last year, he and the ICP team have curated and presented several exhibitions since reopening in October. An astounding accomplishment in any year, David Campany has exhibited or written on over 1100 artists this past year. Erudite and revelatory. I was so proud to come up with two words for this book, that this book reflects a life seeped in visual culture. It is the musings of a polyglot, one who graciously translates deep scholarship into accessible, 
fascinating and witty verse. Photography has wrestled since its invention almost 200 years ago with originality, artistry, science, authorship, time, realism, reproduction, and proliferation. This seminal compilation challenges conventional thought on each of these issues and throws in a few more for consideration. In equal parts, we are delivered mystery, magic, and metaphor. Asserting unseen connections, making intention conscious, and providing context is at the heart of my work, my own work. For me, the experience of being a viewer reader of this little book is sublime. We are all in for a wonderful ride. I just want to say, buckle your seatbelts. So I am going to go to the slide presentation and share my screen. I tried to provide a loose frame of topics with some images that support them. They're jumping off points. And I invite you, David, to riff on each image and its contributions. And um, I've added a few quotes and, and have a few more here. And we begin with looking at three image makers and how they think about photographs. And then we take a wide angle selection where we're going to just look at reading a photograph text and image, scale and materiality. So I'm gonna share my screen and welcome David. And I am going to ask like the wizard um, for you to pull back the curtain and tell us how you got to this little book. I can't live up to that introduction, Sibylla. <laughs> I was writing all of that down. He sounds amazing, I need to. Yeah, he you, is. No, no. I mean, the reality of these things is, you know, most most people's minds is just a kind of jumble of confusions, and then there are points where you try and round them up and give them some kind of coherence. But I don't know. There's something strange about reading off a CV because it just feels just feels slightly alien. Okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll dive in. I was um, <laughs> the book really has a, a, a couple of origins. If if you know anything about writings on photography, you can tell that the title is similar to that Susan Sontag book uh, on photograph, mm -hmm. mine, uh, on photography. Mine's called On Photographs, hers was called On Photography. I, I met her when I was a student and I got to spend an afternoon with her. I was working in a bookshop at the time and I'd read everything she'd written and I was a huge admirer. Uh, but about an hour into the conversation, she said, you don't really like my writings on, on photography, do you? What's wrong with them? And I, I said, well, there's no images in the book. And she said, oh, well, you know, that was a practical decision. Uh, we wanted to keep the cost down. And I said, no, no, I think that's the kind of writing you do in the absence of pictures. And I think you can get away with a lot. A writer can get away with a lot if they don't reproduce the pictures that they're talking about because the viewer can't make up their own mind. And, and I said, and anyway, you don't really write about any particular photographs. It's, just, it's about photography as a sort of general phenomenon I suppose and she said yeah that's true that's true uh she said I found it hard to write about photographs at the time she said I'm trying now 
<laughs> and uh, and then she said, well, maybe one day you'll write a book on a photograph or on photographs. Um, then I got round to it. Um, but the reality was I, I was asked by a publisher, uh, um, an invitation I didn't really like very much. They said, will you write a book about your hundred favorite pictures? Um, I, I don't like those formats. You know, when you go into a bookshop and it says the hundred greatest photojournalists you should know about, or um, they, sound, they all sound very authoritative and, uh, and I don't really like canons. I don't really like, you know, lists of greats or, or anything like that. I don't think it's particularly helpful. Um, but I did say, uh, I'd like to do a book with that very classic format text on image on one page, text opposite and to see what can be done with that format. But I will select and sequence images and there'll be famous things and there'll be obscure things and there'll be anonymous things and there'll be installation shots and there'll be page spreads from books and magazines. But I said to the publisher, you'll have to take them all and in that order, we're not gonna bargain over anything <laughs> because it's the whole or nothing and uh, my editor said, sure, okay, let, let's do it that way. So that's, that's how it began. And, that, and that's why it's idiosyncratic. And that's, that's why it doesn't feel like a book about the 100 greatest rectangles or anything like that. It's actually got 121 in it, I think uh, we ended up with, yeah. Well, that's why I just laughed in terms of a little book, because basically, I think I told you the word that kept coming to mind, and I've only used it once before in a graduate paper, is petard, which is like you kept blowing my mind. And I couldn't even, part of in, in challenging uh, to, to bring you into one sphere and just find three angles to mm. look at work together was such a challenge because you come from, I was literally describing it like you come from so many different positions and you are going in both directions. You go historical and future and you do it from all these different places. So it was it was a pleasure and amazing. Um, you described it also as a Trojan horse, which I thought was a great <laughs> description yeah. because it's just full of surprises. Um, what made you use that analogy? Well, I it's the most classic format you can imagine for a book on photography. You know, here's an image, here's a text. That actually goes right back pretty much to the beginnings. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not the first book, actually, the, the second published book on photography, uh, uh, The Pencil of Nature by uh, Fox Talbot. Mm -hmm. It's arranged like that. And then there are other you know, classic books in the field. Um, but, We've come to a point in publishing where quite often people look to books to be told why something is good and what they should think about it. And I just, mm -hmm. I kind of clutch at the idea um, and it's not helpful. Um, but I, th I think people want that because there's something deeply uh, kind of ambiguous and wild about almost all photographs. And language is usually there to do the taming. It's usually there to do, to do the kind of telling you what to think. And, and that's why I make the remark in the book that it's, it's more important how we think than, than 
than what we think about images. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, a, it's mm -hmm. a book that um, looks very familiar in its format. Um, but my own little goal with each entry was to was to be unexpected, not for the sake of being contrarian, uh, but because there is something wild about all photographs. There is there are unpredictable things about how they work on us, what we think we want from them, uh, what it sometimes appears they want from us. Um, and I'm more inclined to engage in that wildness than try to tame the pictures somehow. I, I felt that openness. And yet, as I was reading, I mean, because you sparked so many thoughts, I was yeah. also trying to say, how did you do this? And the deep scholarship and the threads, um, it was really fascinating um, because I thought, how did you wrangle this? But I'm just gonna, are you all seeing that first slide? Am I hooked up correctly? Great, okay. So how we think about photographs is just as important as what we think about them, which you just said. And I also pulled from the book where John Cage called it response-ability, which I thought was a wonderful uh, take to, to think about um, all the different ways in which we can respond to something you're really embracing, not being reductive. You're asking everyone to get comfortable or even be uncomfortable, but the possibilities are wild. Yes. Which is part of why I said because if you get into this book, that's what happens. Um, yep. Let me go over. Sorry, I'm on two screens. One sec. There we go. Oops. So I chose to start with this Helen Levitt um, image. And um, I was just going to impart what she speaks about um, in terms of, uh, she didn't do a lot of talking about her own work, but some people were writing about it. And in this, um, there's two things I wanted to say. Um, I think that the way you have written in the book and what was so impactful for me is how you honor each image maker's process, all the idiosyncrasies of that. And you're very, very respectful of that process. And that's near and dear to my heart. And then she, um, you, you basically honor their process and then put it before us and kind of inch us forward with it in our own thinking, which I love. But I quoted from, um, well, you quoted and now I'm quoting back, um, James Agee had written um, about this, that, that, that in terms of her work, it was an uninsistent but irrefutable manifesto as a way of seeing. And what you spoke about, and I found so poignant, you brought up that you saw a paradox and you saw a correlation because she often, a subject matter of hers was children, and you likened it to the idea of children are uninsistent manifestos themselves. And so are photographs as they begin as an image and they grow into art. So 
yeah. like you got me at that, right? <laughs> and okay. then you just well, did it 121 times more. But go ahead, sorry. Well, there, are, there. I guess I'm I'm slightly piggybacking on on the on an essay that James Agee wrote. Uh, she she was a very uh, understated person, uh, uh, Helen Levitt, and you know she continued to make these images. And a book was planned, which wasn't published, I think, until the 60s, although a lot of the images are from the 40s. And James Agee wrote this beautiful essay and, and described her work as an uninsistent manifesto, which is obviously is a contradiction. How, how can you have a manifesto and it's un, uninsistent? And the more I looked at her work I, and, and the more consistent it it, it seemed in its understatement and its, you know, kind of minor miracles of observation that she came up with. Um, I, I started to think that there was something very interesting about her continued photography of children. And of course, a, uh, you know, a child is, is not yet. Uh, a child is something. It, uh, but but also is not yet. So so there, there's always a kind of coming coming into being, and it and it struck me that there was a very deep connection between her approach to photography and and children as a as a as a subject matter. Um, and and but it also seemed to me that there was something implied by James Agee's writing on her, which he wasn't quite pulling out. And I thought I would step in and try and pull that out a, li a little bit more. But the, the, you're right that the book is full of these little kind of provocations or little kind of aperçu, the French call them, uh, these little insights that, that are there to just kind of catch, catch a reader and also catch a viewer. Because I, I know that in a format like this, someone's doing the reading and doing the looking at the same time and you want to you want to help a viewer feel feel free to respond not not be told uh that's where the john cage remark comes from you know that he says and he splits the word responsibility up responsibility the, the, the ability to respond is what's important there's no point having great photography and we can fight over what that might be uh, there's no point having it if we don't have great viewers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yes, educating viewers and becoming confident in your own ability to respond. I think it's well. Important. It's interesting. Yes, and um, one other point that um, you made me think of often. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a big proponent of rhizomatic thinking. Uh, one of the only the three shows I did last year, one was called The Rhizome Remains and quoted on Jung's comment on that. So the rhizome being a horizontal structure and that it is the beauty of it is the interconnectivity and the strength of it. And yeah. I uh, propose that we have way more hierarchies that are in a vertical structure and we look at things as good, better, best. And that is so reductive. And if there's anything I'm doing, it is, and I hopefully, <laughs> given all the other things going on in our world, I hope all of our structures are moving into a more horizontal yeah. interconnectivity and seeing the strength of that and having the expansion for that. That's a, um, that's a very interesting point. And it's an interesting way of thinking about it. And 
it's called the book is called on photographs and it and it and it does address these images in their singularity but i'm i'm mindful throughout the book that you know most photographers work by making bodies of work mm-hmm. you know, they get they go into it in a body of work or they photograph over decades and they form an archive and then it, then it gets shaped by them or maybe maybe someone else so so while i'm addressing each picture individually the sequence of the book, and this is maybe where the rhizomatic thing comes in, the sequence of the book is very careful. So if I, if I, if I flip to the page before, uh, there's an image by uh, John Baldessari where he's throwing three balls in the air in an attempt to make a straight line, which, and I don't mention the fact that that has three balls and, and on the next page, there's an image with five bubbles in it bubbles mm-hmm. but you'd be blind not to miss it and and I don't talk about it it, it, mm-hmm. it happens so so the photographs carry on their own conversation between each other which mm-hmm. might not be what's going on in the text um, well exactly this is what I'm talking about how many things you had moving at the same time, which is appropriate because frankly, the medium of photography is always moving. We are moving, our memories are moving. So all of these pieces are moving together. Um, The the photograph after the Ken Russell also has circles in it very uh, deeply, but this is what was was my... yeah and it's of an adolescent girl a kind of teddy girl in the 50s in london Mm -hmm. and and i draw out of that um again kind of this very interesting relation between youth and photography as somehow caught between a past and a future an adolescent is someone who doesn't know what the relation between their outside and their inside is Good point. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something that everyone is perplexed about with photographs, particularly portraits. You know, Mm -hmm. is this an insight into this person or is this just their outside as caught in that moment? Uh, Well, you also, I think when I was trying to think about the relationship, because you you don't choose chronology, you don't choose theme, um, but you are choosing these threads and and you could we could take out and I need to move forward in our presentation but but the idea is you could pull out three images kind of anywhere in the book and they will talk and they're talking not only visually they're talking about some other thread on some other uh, layer, uh, whether it's pop art or um, ready-made, or or even how you use the ready-made and went in and played with that. So you are, you it's yeah. an orchestration, and that's why it was so hard for me to to wrestle it down to to talk to you. But here we go. The second one. Oh, where am I? I am not. There we go. Um, that's interesting. Okay, I didn't know that quote was coming up. But anyway, photography requires something beyond itself. The light that is reflected by the world, it gathers this light and creates illusions. Mm. And I followed it with this Robert um, Rauschenberg, because you were talking about that he uses anything which reflects light. And what I loved is right there is someone who is using many mediums, printmaking, painting, sculpture, performance, photo projection. And again, you're expansive. 
You know, you do not have this reductive definition of what is a photograph. No, so. uh, and I mean, it's uh, the whole question of the definitions of photography, which uh, don't go away. That those, those questions don't go don't go away. And it and it struck me that it's often because uh, people try to come up with a way of conceptualizing photography outside of the subject matter. But if there is no if there is no photography literally without light bouncing off something, um, then that must be actually part of the medium. It must be, that must be part of the apparatus too, but we don't, we don't usually think about it like that. And then of course, if you accept that, then the door gets blown wide open. And Rauschenberg of all the pop artists is, uh, is the one that interests me because his appetite was the most voracious, uh, more than more than Warhol even, um, and uh, but I also like this one because it was called it's called scanning. Yes. And there is some kind of scanner at the top, but there's also the idea that scanning technologies are a kind of photography. Photocopies are a kind of photography, but there's also that idea of scanning the media landscape. You know, which is what we came to expect of pop artists. And of course, a camera, a camera takes in more than the eye does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can take a picture and then, you know, discover later things that are in it that you didn't know. Mm -hmm. So there's, and to that extent, it escapes intention. It escapes authorship. Uh, you know, a photographer, when they take a picture, can just be a general marshaller of what's, what's before them. Um, and that can contain multitudes, you know, way beyond, way beyond intention. Um, and so there's, there's a kind of flowing in and out of intention with Rauschenberg that I, that really, really fascinates me. And that, and, and he had a very nice way of titling things. I always wonder whether his titles came first or last. Uh, uh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he had the idea of standing in his head and then move towards this piece or or maybe he looked at what he'd done and thought, ah, oh, scanning, yes, that's interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My, my other example, um, so interesting that I feel like I'm ready to go to the next slide, but my computer oh. doesn't think so. There we go. Um, is this Gregory Halpern? Um, because I think this speaks to, here is my third and last example of how an image maker is thinking about photography. And I think it mirrors how you think and how you could write this kind of a book. Because what you say, or this is me quoting Halpern, uh, which is in the book. And the quote is, it is said sometimes that photography is uniquely suited to reflect the world, yet our surroundings are complex to the point of being incomprehensible. I want my photography to reflect that. And yes. I, mm -hmm. yeah. that's what you do. You honor that. Yeah, and I was honoring, uh, yeah, there's his voice within the text and uh, it, it, it's a very pertinent image. And in fact, a print of it is in the, I'm sitting in the offices of ICP and a print of this is on the wall at the moment in the show that Paul Graham has, has curated. Mm, has curated. But, it, mm -hmm. but it's also a text that 
the text that I wrote also veers into a very kind of cosmic <laughs> space. I'll just read the last, the last. Sure. Um, so Gregory Halpin describes this photograph that he was on a plane in uh, heading towards Los Angeles and the pilot said, oh, and if you look out the left side of the plane, you can see wildfires. And he was sitting on the other side of the plane. He couldn't see them. So he, when he landed, he drove the 90 miles back to the fires to photograph them. Um, so there's obviously a kind of, you know, an ecological dimension to this, but it, this is also a kind of cosmic picture with these star traces mm -hmm. in the sky. Uh, so I'll just read the last paragraph because it's not what you'd expect in a text about uh, such an image. Out in the heavens, beyond the portion of sky trapped by Halpin's photograph is this planet's eventual end. The Andromeda galaxy is on a collision course with Earth and nothing will stop the impact in around 4 billion years. The sun will burn out in around 5 billion years. So we know categorically that a double fate for the planet is written in the stars, whether or not we avert our immediate ecological catastrophe. However, the creatures that will be around to witness whichever astronomical conclusion comes first will be as different from humans as we are from bacteria. Such is evolution. None of this was planned with you in mind. That's the anti-theist in me, I guess. Uh, but photography can help you contemplate it. There you go. Booyah, like that happens over and over and over again, um, which is why, um, yeah, this is no little book, um, but wonderful and 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 i'm so pleased that your view is as expansive as it is so there i love this um the next or the only three frames i have this is about reading a photograph we know they're emotive evocative elusive one of the the ways in which you talk about photography which you do many, many times, but from so many different vantage points is this, there are no wrong or right interpretations of a photograph. And this makes it ideally suited to the picturing of mixed feelings. Yes. And I'm, yeah, loved that. Yeah, that's, that, that is to do with the fact that photographs uh, show and they can't explain. Mm -hmm. Yes, so you speak of that as them being mute. Yes, they are mute. And that could be a strength. And it's curious because there's a lot of talk, you hear a lot of talk today of photography being used to amplify or give voice to. Mm -hmm. And that can only be metaphorical. And that, it, that runs against the idea that surely something that we like about photographs must be their still muteness must be the fact that they describe things that they cannot explain or account for. You can photograph somebody sneezing, it will never tell you how they caught a cold. Mm -hmm. The caption, mm -hmm. the, the photograph won't. The photograph, mm -hmm. the photograph won't do that. Is that one reason perhaps why, I mean, you are obviously fascinated as all of us on this call are with photography, is that one of the reasons why that, that they mirror the incomprehensibleness and we actually appreciate that? Yes, I think so. And I think that's also why photographers tend to, although every photograph is, is 
singular, never mind it's the fact that you can reproduce that single picture, but, but that every photograph in relation to kind of time and space and is, is singular. Um, I, I think that's an indication of why photographers tend towards the idea of the body of work, the, the kind of overcoming somehow of the single image. Mm -hmm. Very few photographers, particularly today, that, that, that want to make absolutely singular pictures that stand in no relation to any others. Um, and so there's something perverse even in making a book about the, the singularity of pictures. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not how most photographers work. Um, and, and yet each and every exposure is, cannot be anything other than singular. Mm -hmm. uh, Those contradictions, that paradox, right? Yeah. Uh, the dialectic. Um, yeah. And it makes photography, there's a kind of false argument in photography between the one and the many. Mm -hmm. You know, there are photographers that will tell you it's just raw material and the making of the work comes in the process of the editing and the shaping, you know, into a book or an exhibition. That's absolutely true. Um, and, and yet all of those elements that make up the whole have their own do have their own individuality. And there's nothing to stop someone ignoring the body of work and just saying, I'm really fascinated with this picture. <laughs> you know, I just like, mm -hmm. this, I just like this one or this picture grabs me for some reason. Mm -hmm. that even I can't understand, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That's the punctum of it. Um, I bring up this image, the Giselle Freund of Virginia Woolf, um, partly because I, I appreciate that you noted that there are a group of women, uh, you call them between the wars women photographers, and you comment on their significant contributions and how they are left out of the canon of yeah. photography. Um, and what I appreciated here is that you spoke about her interest, uh, Giselle's interest in the social consequences of photography, how it affected people's relationship to knowledge, politics and consumerism, and even their sense of self. I love yeah. that. Yeah, Freund was amazing and she, um, she wrote this, she was good friends with Walter Benjamin and uh, she wrote this, she wrote this book that was published in, in France called Photography and Society in, mm -hmm. in the 30s, didn't get translated until the 80s, till around 1980. And by then the kind of canons of photography had been put in place. Uh, Freund was also not welcome in the United States because of her politics, but she was an extraordinarily important figure within photography. And yes, there were, there were a number of women who I think are absolutely key to understanding photography in the 20th century. They were between, yeah, they were working between the wars, but they were also working between the avant-garde and the mainstream. Uh, <coughs> photographers like Laura Albanguio, who's in the book, mm -hmm. yep. Lemaine Kroll, who's in the book, Mm -hmm. um, these, these Florence Henry. Florence Henry. Then they're now getting the attention they they deserve, and they they do completely rewrite the history of photography and modernism because photography was open to them uh, exactly. in, in, in a way the other arts were not. 
I underscore that all the time. They, we were introduced at the same time, unlike any other fine art. Um, I was able to see the exhibit, well, part of the exhibit, Who's Afraid of Women Photographers during Paris Photo in 2015. Um, And because of the attack uh, and not being, I couldn't get to both of the sections. Um, Mm. That was so, so important. There was also Women House that was reinterpreted uh, yeah. during Paris Photo as well, another year. Um, so it's happening yeah. uh, 100 there's years al- after it happened. But mm-hmm. there's also something else about those. Uh, oh, Sibylla, you disappeared. Uh, maybe you'll come I did. Back. Uh, oh, don't know why. You're picked. Oh, there you are. Um, there's something <laughs> else about those those women modernist photographers of the 20s and 30s, which is really fascinating, was how versatile they were. Mm -hmm. And and it ran against the idea of a kind of signature style or a kind of defined way of working. And the histories of photography don't like that either because they can't put them in a box. Oh, they made this kind of work or they did this Mm -hmm. kind of thing. they photographed uh, family or whatever. Well, they did, you know, someone like Jermaine Kroll was in the avant-garde magazines. She was in the mainstream press. She did architecture. She did advertising. She did portraiture. She did fashion. She did photojournalism. She collaborated with uh, fiction writers on books. I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowing, just the range of things, uh, particularly those women between the wars could do. And it, and it scrambles people's sense of, uh, you know, the kind of art historical expectation that a, that a photographer should be, should, should be doing a kind of defined thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think they understood something about the, the kind of wildness and the, the, all of the various applications of photography and that, you, that it didn't need to be a fine art print to be good art. You just made good work and you let the art fall where it did. So mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. it might be a book or it might be a, it might be on the pages of a magazine, it might be on a billboard, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's so um, helpful to hear you say that and you're making me think again. Um, I brought up this image, Alessandra Sanguinetti, um, because I love what you speak about in terms of this, that it was a fiction in search of a truth uh, and how she engaged in photographing and that would talk about a body of work. I think this was over more than a decade. Yeah, I was really, it's recently been republished and I think she's she's expanded the project, but she, Sanguinetti followed these, these two girls through their well, we're back, puberty. To the end. back yeah to the, through puberty and um they they would often role play with each other and they would riff on things that they'd seen in, in tv or films and in there's something about the engagement with fiction and fantasy that that does i i think get us to something truer so it's not to do with uh, it's not to do with a photographer going out there to capture truths like they're shooting mm-hmm. rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> There's the truth. Shoot. Uh, 
it's much more it's much more kind of expansive and elusive and collaborative and collaborative mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and being so engaged in the process in conversation with the work yeah. that's uh, a big piece um i have um I loved this part. The camera can register psychological tremors beyond all intention. Benjamin called this optical unconscious conscious. Yeah. And here is a Germaine crawl image, yeah. a portrait of Walter Benjamin. And I think I mentioned this to you. I, I, I was, this is what I mean. You do not expect to pick up a little book or any book on photographs and get hit with the piece that you wrote on this page. And I'm gonna read this because I thought it was um, incredible. But you reflected on the particular relationship between photography and melancholia. And then you went on to say is that they share a state that exists on the threshold of withdrawal and self-performance between absorption and theatricality, experienced as a conscious condition, lived from within and observed from without, trapped mm. in a kind of ongoing hyper-awareness, alone but regulated by the gaze of others. I literally photographed that in a book and sent it to a friend um, saying nothing about it was in a photography book. I, but this idea of that's where I'm saying not only generous, but empathic and that um, you can take these ideas and just mull them. That's why when I went back to the erudite, because you have studied so much and you have such a wide range, but then the revelatory, what you weave together and kind of go here, think about this, was amazing. That was absolutely spectacular and rather beautiful. And then you also reflect in that, the text about what he may have been thinking at this particular point and, and, and yeah, melancholy, that, a particular, you know. Yeah, well, Ben, ben be, being wrote, part of it. He wrote about melancholia. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are other writers that have written about the connection between photography and, and, and melancholia. And you, you can't help but notice how, how it runs right the way through from kind of, you know, Victorian photographers, women, but not only the, 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 the kind of theatrical or slightly theatrical presentation of melancholy. Um, and, and melancholy is a, is a slightly theatrical, the melancholic knows that they are melancholic. And so that, so they, they do, they are thinking about it as something they can't escape from and also slightly performed even if it's for themselves or an imaginary other. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that took a while to write that passage just to, just to get the, get the expression of it to do justice to the complexity of the, of the idea somehow. Mm -hmm. I'm also just trying to, just trying to honor um, really interesting photographs. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and, that one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this. This is a Hannah. Hall. I do too. Yes. Well. Yep. Uh, Hannah Hannah Hawk 
she's known for her photo collages, that she's one of the kind of Dadaists in Germany in the 19 teens and mainly known for her work between the wars. Um, but it struck me that if you consider her career as a whole, so she starts in the teens and she's making work right into the 1970s. And she was a voracious consumer of magazines, German and international. You know, to look at her work is to is to one is to is to look through one woman's navigation of the mass media over decades. Really is. Uh, that's uh, my quote. Oh, okay. But it, here's what. Yeah. But it's also I just thought well it's amazing so. Hock actually lived through, I mean, there were so many movements within the 20th century that were dealing with what generally gets called the kind of bombardment of images, you know, the ex constant expansion of the mass media. So she's there in Dada, she lives through surrealism, she lives through pop and conceptualism. Mm -hmm. And actually she dies, I think she dies in 78, just as what got called the pictures generation, you know, the, the Cindy Shermans, the Sherry Levines, the Richard Princes were getting going. So if you, if you think about her career as a whole, and this is a late one, the one I chose. Yes, is from it 19, is, 1969. But it's called Entartet, which, which uh, uh, means sort of degenerate. And it's, and it's a reference back to the Nazi exhibition of degenerate art that was supposed to kind of denounce all of the kind of avant-garde artists. So yeah, that's me deliberately going out on a limb to pick something that's not the usual Hannah Hock image. Mm -hmm. Kind of use that as an interesting image in its own right, but also say, look, this is a way of thinking about one woman's experience of, 50, 60 years of the mass media. Extraordinary. Yes. Yes. The quote that I pulled because I thought it was so beautiful that you said, this is her work is a map of one woman's navigation of the values and ideologies of the printed page. Yeah. So yeah, it takes us through that. And I had to laugh. I'm thinking about this and going, okay, if I put it on Instagram, would I get called on it? Curious. Yeah. Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. So moving to the text and image component, uh, making sense of photography should really be a matter of studying the complex interactions of word and image. I loved that. Um, and you had spoken about the integral parts of, of text always being with, from the very first book, as you mentioned with Talbot, but they're always being this dialogue, so to speak, and integral to parts of photography, such as fashion or forensics, family albums, photojournalism, documentary. Yeah. So um, what I found interesting, you talk again about words, how they can neither define or confine a photograph. They can tame and stabilize your image. And I just loved this Robert Frank, loved this Robert Frank. <laughs> I'd never seen it before. And well, I just thought it really spoke to this idea. And Curious of your text and image, and if you could talk a little bit about what you call scripto-visual. It's not, it's not a particularly autobiographical book, but 
I came into photography in my teenage years and one of the first books I ever saw was a book of Robert Frank's work and it had it had this in it and it's a picture that he took in 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 Mabu Nova Scotia where he was living and uh he gorgeous he made the Americans you know published that book in 58 59 and put photography aside. He went off to make films for 10 years. I make coffee. Excuse me, could We're everyone mute, please? Can you mute, please? We don't want to know about your coffee. It's <laughs> or make a- some for us. <laughs> anyway, he, and then when he came back to, when he came back to photography, he was making collages. He was mixing word and image in all of these interesting ways. So I never... We always come in in the middle and then maybe we learn about what a photographer did earlier. So so my first encounter with images from Robert Frank's The Americans was these two pictures within another of his photographs. And he's clearly battling with what he can, what you can convey in images, what you can convey in text and what the relation between um, the two might be. Scripto-visual is actually a phrase used by um, the artist and writer Victor Bergen, mm-hmm. who he wrote a fabulous essay called Seeing Sense, in which he says, well, the interesting thing about image and text is they're separate out there in the world, but they are not separate in our heads. So if I say the word chair to you, you've, you're immediately your mind is immediately picturing something chairish. If you read the word chair, same thing, you've got a mental image of it. If you see something in the world and you recognize it as a chair, language has already intervened too. So we're in this peculiar situation where what's going on in our heads is what they call in psychoanalysis a rebus, you know, a kind of mixture of different kinds of languages, visual, verbal, um, you know, that famous T-shirt that says I heart NY, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a rebus, that's a, um, and it's hybrid and it's, it's very mixed, it's very mixed up, even though out there in the world there are things called images and there are things called texts in our heads, they're not so separate. They're never, they're never so separate. Um, I, I wouldn't override the differences between them, uh, but I wouldn't ignore the connection uh, either. That's so interesting. That makes me think, wasn't it Taryn Simon's Image Atlas project? Uh-huh. Where she was working to chronicle, I, I think the story is she found the um, the files, the the visual files in the New York Public Library. So for instance, if it was comb, there would be all these photographs that they had saved in files, like yes. paper files that were of comb. And she was interpreting that across our um, internet connected world and our globalization world. So if you were to think of some other things, what they would be, it was a fascinating idea of this. I mean, it wasn't as much text and image. It was almost concept and image. Yeah, it's interesting. It comes up a few, quite a few times in the book. I mean, there's a great, uh, uh, there's a, there's a piece in there 
by uh, Anastasia Samoylova and uh, where, where she makes kind of constructed Matterhorn, yes. Matterhorn, constructed kind of tabletop collages out of images that she searched for online, but she she has to search with words. So she'll she'll use the word Matterhorn to find images of the Matterhorns or or uh, trees in fog, and then so there's this very interesting, you know, looking for images with words is something people do all the time. And mm -hmm. but it's a very odd exchange. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, and it's just so fun to feel how much, well, how many variations there are, and and how it keeps moving. Mm. Um, I love this. Uh, Photography is a space of slippage and borrowing of translation and fusion. I love mm. this slippage, um, and obviously this is. Uh, a perfect example of of pushing text and image and and also about agency yeah uh, yeah it's an image by uh, lala asaidi mm -hmm. and uh there it there is script written over the image and she's she's very interested in um you know who who gets to write within different cultures uh uh, but there's also the interesting idea that 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 text is itself uh, visual, mm -hmm. as well as, mm -hmm. as well as readable. It's it, visual, um, and so this is a completely overwritten image in many ways. You know, there's text all over it, bodies, and fabrics, um, but but the image itself is a kind of playing on colonial ideas of images of kind of sequestered uh women uh out outside of the kind of active space of society so she she, she talks very well about being all of the different levels that are going on within her work all of which is is thoroughly scripto visual for sure. yeah yeah and even thinking about um the ability for uh women to be uh, allowed to read Sure. And right. Um, so moving into the um, the final wide angle view is this output and uh, looking at scale and materiality. And I just love that you wrote that photo is a matter of image capture followed by image output. The lack of sovereign scale or materiality means so many things can be done with a photographic image. And and I was especially pleased to have you zone in on output because I'm often speaking with people about all the choices and the decision making between when you actually have an image and then what you do with it and the the output choices and I just have a few examples you have so many and and really lots of beautiful ones this is the Esther Teichman uh, where she paints on top of the image on top and i mean there are lots of works that that are in the book that are unreproducible and i tell you that they're unreproducible <laughs> uh and, and that itself is a kind of undermining of of the book uh as something that can account for all kinds of photography um uh but yes it's 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 the, the image is made, the, the capture is made, it's printed at a certain size, and then it's overpainted. And, and it, when you start, if you start painting on a photograph, 
it suddenly has a relation to the to the scale and the physical operations of the hand, the way that paintings do. And of course, you know, a painter, a paint, generally speaking, there are always exceptions, but generally speaking, a painter doesn't paint their painting and then decide how big it will be. They don't paint their painting and then decide what material it will be made from. Those scale and materiality are more or less sovereign to painting. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, generally speaking, yeah, in photography, there's, there's image capture. And you may, when you're capturing your image, ha have a very sp specific idea of what the output would be. Um, or you may not. Um, it, it could be in a kind of spirit of the Bauhaus that you do 10 different things with what you've made. What, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What captured. Um, there is, there is, and I, and I get, I, and it leads to photography having this very chameleon relationship to context. When you see a photograph reproduced on the page, you don't think to yourself, oh, the real thing is somewhere else. But if you, if you see, if you see a Berta Morisot painting reproduced in a, in a, book of her paintings, you know the painting is somewhere else. <laughs> you, you know that you're, you know that there's a difference between image and the object. Mm -hmm. And uh, photography slips around that a lot. Um, it mm -hmm. really does. I mean, I remember, I, I remember the, the first, uh, first catalog that Jeff Wall produced. Now he's a photographer that worked to particular has worked to a particular sense of scale, life scale in the gallery. He made a catalog in 1980 where the images are reproduced and then it says underneath what their dimensions are, which is clearly different to what they are on the page. As if to say, this is not the work that you're looking at. The, the work is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that was the first, that's the earliest occurrence I've seen of a photographer's work being reproduced on the page with dimensions being stated underneath. It's a very obvious point, but yeah, yeah, uh, it's, fa it's fascinating. Um, and you, yeah. don't, you can have a very specific idea about scale in your mind as a photographer, but you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't have to. I mean, it could be part of your exploration um, or in, in the instance, um, my young Holi, uh, yeah. South Korean, this photographer, um, obviously was thinking about it from from the get go. Um, and I I appreciate what you were speaking of in reference to this image. Um, and you've brought this up before in our talk already. It's this um, uh, between specificity and generalities and that were uh, photography is a medium of specificity, while a photo is not suited to generalities. Um, and no. you quote here uh, that this can be seen as a meditation upon the artificial terms and conventions by which photographic images can become knowledge. So you're pointing out we so often transfer this knowledge yeah. to a photograph when it's like, hello, like <laughs> consider the source. It isn't yeah, it's the real deal. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, it's a lovely picture that plays on the idea of the, mm. the specimen and the botanical study. So that, you know, that's a big tree. That's a very large tree. And a, and a backdrop has been, you know, scaffolded and put, put behind it. Takes us all the way back to the very first uh, published book of uh, photography by Anna Atkins, her, mm-hmm. her, her studies. Yeah, the cyanotype studies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it's true. I mean, I noticed that um, in in, for example, botanical books, you know, like uh, sort of educational books, they don't use photographs. And the reason they don't use photographs is because let's say you wanted to photograph, let's say you wanted an image of a, a species of rose, Every with a camera, all you can do is is photograph a, a specimen. You can't photograph the species. You, mm-hmm. You're photographing one, and that one may have mutations in it. That is the nature of evolution. So that one can never represent the whole species. So a botanical illustrator, not using photography, has to look at various specimens and average them out. But photography, generally speaking, is a medium of specifics not of averages it's a medium of peculiarities um and it's and it struggles it struggles with with generalities unless it uses stereotypes or cliches or Mm -hmm. which yeah which we can reinforce with photography yeah um here's another uh example of the scale and materiality um Mm -hmm. noemi kudal Yes. Yeah. Where we're mimicking. It looks like a cascade. It's called cascade. Looks like a cascade. And 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 the closer you look at it, the the more it becomes clear that it's a kind of plastic cheating. Um, And I, and but then this is one of the texts in the book where it drifts away and then comes back. So I, I go into a discussion of plastics. The you know. Plastic is a very interesting material because it's a kind of mimicry. We're, we're surrounded by plastics that are pretending to be other things all the time. They're pretending to be leather. They're pretending to be <laughs> uh, wooden floors. Plants. <laughs> and yet uh, every piece of plastic that has ever been made at a molecular level still exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's Noemi Goodell making a kind of nature scene where <laughs> plastic is imitating water. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Complicated. There's, yes, yes. Um, I love, um, I felt there was a musical, well, I did think of you as an, uh, a conductor of an orchestra here sometimes, but you put in album covers and, and, and other artwork. And if, you want to go into the specifics of this I, I have. What I what blew me yeah. away is this is an album cover. It's the artwork uh, called For There Is Love. Um, there is love and, in yeah. And the there is love in you, right. And it's this idea, this so I teach concept development and the idea that this just 
is fabulous on every level in terms of concept development yeah. um, because he is literally, this is Jason Evans, is making an equivalent, a visual equivalent of recorded sound. Yeah. Um, Unreal. They, do you want me to, do you want to explain or do you want I, to I read it? Because it's, it's complicated. Yeah, go ahead. But just, just to say that a long, long time ago, Jason and I, Jason Evans and I talked taught we were teachers together and he had an enormous impact on me I, I still think he's one of the 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 greatest photographers <laughs> he just keeps his head down and he makes work mm -hmm. or he really just wants to make good work he's not he's, he's not careerist he's not interested in being famous he just he just goes about this, his work and uh, he he makes genius. the album. Make, he's a genius. He makes the album artwork for Fortet, who's a musician. Uh, uh, Fortet is really a guy called Kieran Hebden, and and Kieran will give Jason Evans the music for the forthcoming album, and then Jason comes up with a cover for the record. Uh, and on this album, which is called "There Is Love in You," which I think is from two thousand and ten. It's a, it's a mixture of very digital sounds and very analog instruments. So what did, how did Jason make this cover? He went to the various digital, commercial digital printing labs in London. And those printing labs, they print out test sheets every morning to make sure their printers are working. So color spectrums, images of flowers or grids, just to make sure the printers are, are great. Um, he rounded up all of these test sheets. He pinned them up on his studio wall. He photographed them on um, medium format yeah. film, processed the film. He then got a hole punch, you know, like a secretary's hole punch, hole punch these little discs of the celluloid. Then with a pair of tweezers, he laid them out on a sheet of glass puts that sheet of glass into the enlarger and makes a C-type print. And if you look very, very closely, it could only have been made that way. All of those little discs have these rough plastic edges and it's a thorough mix of the analog and the digital um, in the same way that the music is analog and digital. And it's just gorgeous. And more than that, it's it has such an interesting relation to context because if you buy it on a 12 inch record like a vinyl record um the dots kind of look actual size if you buy it on a cd the dots still look actual size but there are fewer of them because it's smaller it when you look at the little mp3 uh uh, digital icon it's just got just a few of them so he's thinking about scale and material. <laughs> all of those I just love it I just think it's just the most amazing thing and it and it also goes back he's very informed by those interesting photographers of the 20s and 30s who knew you could make something fabulous maybe in the con in a commercial context and it might mm -hmm. live on. it might live on just as something that's Great, you know, you, you make good work and the art falls where it falls. 
you don't have to. Absolutely, Actually. yes. Well, I'm thinking of two things. One is that no wonder you two are friends. I mean, you think alike. Um, but what you just described is, um, it makes me think of someone like um, Blumenfeld uh, and that kind of play. Yeah. And, it, and it does cross over between commercial and art. And it certainly lives on. Um, yeah. which is really, really fun. Um, okay, we just have a couple more before we can open for questions. Loved this, and uh, you introduced me to a lot of people. Um, yeah. This is Doug Ricard, um, yeah. and it's the, the series, um, a New American Picture, and uh, these are taken within Google Street. Yeah, they're taken on Google Street View, and... Uh... Ricard has a has quite a deep knowledge, particularly of uh, American photography and road trip photography, and this is his version of a kind of American <laughs> road trip. So they have they have a kind of kinship with uh, American color photography of the seventies and eighties, I guess. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that it's kind of dated already because the, uh, well, in two senses, one that Google Street View technology has already improved since this project was made 10, 11 years ago, but also um, Google Street View constantly updates itself. And mm -hmm. um, so this is a kind of historical record. He, interestingly, he, he, he makes, he doesn't take them as screenshots. He uses a 35 mil SLR camera, which is the classic, you know, taking it on the road. <laughs> photographer's apparatus, right? Uh, but he sets it up on a tripod and shoots his screen. So if you get to look closely at it, you can see the, you can see the, the fact that it is a computer screen that's been shot and, and that mixes up with the grain of the film. <laughs> so yes, there's I'm it's escaping me the photographer at the moment, but um, during Paris photo I went to a panel delivered by foam um, and there had been an exhibition of this man's work who did portraits within video games yeah. um, and most of them were ones where he had to enlist friends to help keep his avatar or whatever alive yeah fascinating like when we start to unpack that which actually the last uh second to last image i have is along these lines in terms of you know our our, our sandbox just keeps getting bigger <laughs> uh and yeah, this one yeah this is by lucas blaylock Luke, mm -hmm. uh, emil it, man of the future real man of the future I, I'm fascinated with Lucas Blaylock because, and, and we did have a, as well as writing, I know very well that many photographers speak and write very well about their own work. Mm -hmm. And I'm as, I'm as interested in, in a, and as happy to have conversations with photographers as I am to just write about it myself. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I do that more and more. Um, I saw Karen Knorr was in the audience. Karen Knorr's most recent book has a discussion between the, the, the mm -hmm. two of us. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was talking with Lucas Blaylock for a conversation that went into one of his books, we discussed how Photoshop, uh, even when we use it as a verb, like 
to Photoshop something, we know what we mean. It usually means to, to, to clean something up, to sanitize it, to get rid of the unwanted, to make it better than it was before. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so Photoshop is a kind of grooming. Uh, it's the kind of beauty parlor that you take images to, right? <laughs> but we know if you do too much cosmetic work to a photograph, it looks doesn't look real. <laughs> and plastic surgery. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um Blaylock kind of runs with that idea. You know, what if Photoshop is a kind of it's just a very interesting creative tool in itself that might have a relation to sculpture or drawing or slapstick or close-up magic, these are all terms that he uses um, to form a kind of black comedy of the image, which is so against what we think of as how Photoshop is supposed to be. Yeah, subverting the the tool. Mm -hmm. Make it better somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah transgressive that's so interesting um there's one more shot and frankly i am ending with your cover um i am a big uh fan of guy bourdin bourdin so how did you choose and why did you choose this as your cover photo cut i'm totally fascinated with what images get chosen for the covers of books about photography (laughs) because all order I thought once I'd, you know, once I'd agreed with the publisher on the contents, you know, the, the, the publisher had agreed to con- publish the contents that I wanted. I thought any number of them would work on the cover. And then they said, well, no, it needs to be, it needs to be something that's on, on kind of some kind of meta commentary level about it. Uh, it. It's an image that needs to be doing something that actually your writing does. Um, what I did like it because because Bourdin is one of those figures who uh, wasn't interested in the gallery scene. He concentrated on making work in a commercial setting for mm-hmm. advertisers and also for the pages fashion. of Vogue and fashion. Mm-hmm. And um, hardly had any exhibitions in his lifetime. Now he's regarded as an extraordinary figure. Um, and there's a whole opening section of the book where photographs appear somehow within photographs in order Mm -hmm. to say, well, it's not just that the world gets photographed a lot, but photographs are a constituent part of the world that we live in and that we move through, and they're as legitimate a photograph is as legitimate a subject for a photograph as a building or a face or a mountain or a <laughs> that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also an interesting way of weaving various, there, there, are, there are all kinds of subterranean connections going on in the book. So correct. the only publication that Bourdin produced in his own lifetime was a was a brochure for Bloomingdale's lingerie mm-hmm. uh, in around I can't remember I think it was like 1978. Mm-hmm. Yes, 
it was a freebie. It was like a 20 page brochure. It was a freebie in uh, the New York Times magazine. They now sell for like $800, $900, these things. Um, Victor Bergen, who I mentioned in relation to the scripto visual, was in New York and was really interested in this little brochure where, because the images were far more fascinating than Bloomingdale's or the lingerie deserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and were far more complex and darker and stranger. And um, he brought it back. He gave it to uh, a writer and an avant-garde magazine editor called Rosetta Brooks. Mm-hmm. She wrote a she wrote a piece about it, which was one of the first serious pieces of kind of critical theoretical writing about fashion imagery. Mm-hmm. And, that, and her essay is now regarded as like the kind of cornerstone of kind of quote unquote fashion theory. Um, but it came from this brochure, commercial brochure, <laughs> falling out of the newspaper in New York and being brought by one artist who's also in the book to another writer and you know, that's nice. So, you know, one lives for those kind of connections there. Yes, and I, well, I also love, um, for me, it, it intersects some of my favorite things. It's, it's, it's drawing on psychoanalysis. So psychology and that realm is of interest in semiotics. Um, and I love that what you spoke about, what Rosetta pulls out is it discussed the relations between product and image desire and seduction, art and commissions, and photography and deathliness, Um, size and whispers. And that makes me think of um, how Neiman Marcus was doing the the art of fashion inserts. And when Lillian Bassman took it over in the the early 90s and, and she had reinterpreted her work and had been found again and and how stunningly beautiful those pieces were yeah 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 big fan i am i i know and i could talk to you basically all afternoon but i do want to allow people to also have questions i of course have like more questions i have a list of questions but i'm going to just hold off and i'm gonna stop sharing um and deb I don't know if you want to give us a sense. I haven't looked at chat uh, and I don't know if hands are up, but let's take some questions from people. Yeah, we haven't had people asking questions in in the chat. So I think if people want to raise their hands and we can unmute you or unmute yourself. Perfect. Or we could go and get some lunch. (laughs) <laughs> or I can ask a couple of those questions, but. I would be surprised. Oh, Lou Benjamin says uh, that Bordan reminds him of the Ken Josephson picture on the cover of Shaw's, Stephen Shaw's Nature of Photographs. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that designer probably faced the same problem. How, what? I don't. Someone should make an exhibition of of pictures that were used on the cover of books about photography. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a good. There you go. I remember my copy of Sontag's on on photography had a, had a strange 
portrait of two people, kind of 19th century portrait. I always, I don't really know the story of how, you know, of all the pictures in the world, that one came to be on the cover of that book. Mm, yeah, so some of those um, seminal works get republished, what happens? Yeah. Yeah, that'd yeah. be interesting. Oh, I see a couple of hands up. So do you want to do that, Deb? Yes, I'm on or shall I? Uh, Render. Hello. Yes, hi. Hi, my name's Ravinda. How are you, David? I'm well, thank you. Good, I'm glad you're well. So one thing I noticed regarding your book, and particularly when you were speaking throughout this amazing interview, is that you mentioned you don't like books that try and compile at least 100 photographs and give this authority to them. Do yeah. you think that is one of those issues for students who go out there and take one of these books off the shelf, books off the shelves and think, right, okay, this, is a, this should set the visual ideas that I should be going for. Do you think that puts a lot of pressure on students? Do you think it puts a lot of pressure on image makers to aspire to be that way. It certainly seems like that when some artists, for example, yeah. uh, that are abstract artists or perhaps uh, students that work in any other fine art, when they get these books given to them or perhaps chucked down their throat in universities, they yeah. try and become somebody in the first year or, or try and imitate work and then they start to show their own way of navigating through that work it just feels somewhat forceful in that way to me uh, what's your position on that yeah i think it's a problem although i, I love the idea of uh of, of a young photographer you know finding their influences and working through them in their own way um because I think there's, I think there's a, a lot to learn at an individual level, not at the level of a kind of curriculum of teaching. There's a lot, there's a lot to learn by asking yourself, okay, why do certain photographers or certain images uh, preoccupy me? Um, what am I going to do about it? Um, if you're, I mean, I actually bring it up in the book at a couple of points. There's an, there's an image by Gerard Castello Lopez, who's not so well known, Portuguese photographer. He was also a filmmaker and he started a, a jazz club and all kinds of things. And he was absolutely enamored, impressed by Henri Cartier-Bresson's book, The Decisive Moment and it clearly shaped his own pictures and he made remarkable pictures of his own and there's one I include in the book which you could really mistake for a Cartier-Bresson picture mm. and I love the idea that you might make something extraordinary while pretending to be someone else or, or being seriously under the influence of someone else mm -hmm. um, and I think that's closer to how creativity works I mean, we, we live in a culture which kind of, it's presumed that we're supposed to be absolutely unique if we're an artist with no relation to, any, to anyone else. It just doesn't, hardly ever works like that. And if, if we, I mean, I'm of the generation that was, you know, quite deeply influenced 
not by the idea of finding your voice or finding your signature thing, but by trying on lots of hats. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think you, sometimes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say sometimes it's important to try on lots of hats, as you say, mm -hmm. and that jump in and out of different styles of photography certainly for myself it took me a while to find what kind of uh, image maker I was or as I like to call it a visual artist uh, because I didn't want to restrict myself to being called a photographer I wanted to look at myself in a different light and work in a different light I, I like words I like images I, I adore poetry I, yeah. I like mixing the two mediums I love mixed media so I think it's good to try on different hats. And if you want to have two hats on at the same time, that's also good too, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm really, I was a generation kind of formed by, you know, David Bowie. Mm. You know, oh, I'll make a soul album. Oh, I'll make a drum and bass album. Oh, I'll make a glam rock album. Oh, I'll make an ambient album. And to trust that if there is anything original about you, it will come through. You don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about that. It'll, it'll. Yeah, it'll absolutely. I think yeah, that's definitely well said. Even if one doesn't want to, I think I think it was said. Uh, your friend that made the images, uh, the beautiful images of the cutouts. I forgot their name now. Jason said, Evans. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's just not. Uh, needed to become somebody in this world or it, no. it's enough to make work it's enough to go out there and just educate others and yeah. it's enough to make somebody uh, inspire somebody else and, and make them feel a connection yeah. to visual arts as well because that is important it helps you grow and yeah. it's definitely one thing that's helped me grow yeah and, uh, to your broader yeah. point, though, there that you made at the beginning, uh, the book is the book is written and the and the it looks the way it does to subvert that whole idea. I love the fact that an exactly. auntie might buy this book for their mm -hmm. for their niece or nephew, thinking, "Oh yeah, yeah, they need the they need the book that gives the kind of lowdown." Uh, <laughs> and when that person gets that book, they just you know they might they might not be happening it's a pandora's box you know this, yeah. is, this is yeah. not this is not going to be a book that tells you this is what you need to know and this is how you need to know it and this is what's good and that's yeah who wants that Can, i'm going to interrupt for one direction yeah <laughs> i'm going to interrupt for one second to to say one thing and then to pass on to other questions but um when you brought up that the um the decisive moment uh was actually in french the moments on the fly and how the interpretation the translation was so off the mark of what actually it meant to be um, and same happened in um, psychoanalysis with Freud, where he was interpreted in English, where the German was actually the word for soul, and we didn't do that, and we gave it a much more scientific interpretation. So it's fascinating in terms of translating. But someone else, Ansi, Thomas, it could be, I see a hand. Yeah, hi, Ansi Thomas. Yeah. Hi, Ansi yes, Thomas. Hi. Uh, it was lovely. 
Hi, it was lovely listening to you, David. Um, my question is regarding painted photography. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I wanted to know the Western perception of painted photography because uh, Roland Barthes uh, talks about painted photography in his book. Uh, uh, and he refers to it as uh, uh, because he's privileging indexicality. He he doesn't see it as much of a worth uh, because the paint is um, obstructing the uh, indexicality uh, and the photographic referent. So he doesn't uh, um, give that much importance to painted photography. And um, I've also uh, done research on painted photography in India. So yeah. I've looked at how um, paint, uh, the perception of painted photography is different uh, but, uh, in the case of uh, Indian painted photographs yes. and, how, and how, uh, how the perception is different from the Europeans. So how there is um, this idea of a miniature paint, uh, paintings and how painted photographs take an influence from those miniature paintings. And uh, uh, so the uh, so it, it's perceived well in the Indian case. Um, yeah. So can you take uh, talk a bit more about painted photography and the Western perception and the artists how they are um, how they are experimenting with that and how yeah. it is taken in by the audience as well. I don't think I could generalize about a Western perception. I I, I know that's become a kind of common way of of thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and obviously there are some truths to that. Um, as you were saying those things, though, I, it, it struck me how often uh, overpainting comes up in the book, and it's not. And I have to say, it's not something I'm. I thought I was particularly interested in, but I must have been very interested in it. Now that I, now that I glance through the book, it comes up in one form or another, like six or seven times. Mm -hmm. Um, the the Roland Bart remark comes from uh, the one that's made in 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 Cider is interesting because he's he's actually if I have you right it's the passage where he's talking about color photography and he says he says color often looks like an addition it looks like you know the way you would uh, make a corpse look good you know a dead body is you know. Mm -hmm a little red in the cheeks and uh and i i think that way of thinking comes from the fact that uh black and white photography predated color photography mm. um and so so people knew of photography essentially in black and white for a long long time before before color arrived so color felt like an an addition um, it was also very, very badly reproduced on the page for a long, long time. And it often had the look or the kind of slightly clammy look of a kind of layering of color over something. But the relation between color and black and white is not a symmetrical one, because if you if you take a color photograph, it, it contains its own black and white version. You can you can press a button now and convert it to black and white. If you take mm -hmm. a black and white image, you can't convert it to color. Mm. If it's taken as black and white, if it becomes color, you have to add it. Yeah. 
it, be, it becomes additional. And of course, the culture, the early culture of, of overpainting of photographs, um, what, the motivations were complex, I think, east or west. Um, and they range from like colorizing to personalizing to paying homage to making something unique you know as soon as you as soon as you overpaint the image it, it, it's not reproducible in the same way um it takes it needs needs a lot of um that is a great question and it's it needs unpacking in sort of several directions all at the same time i think to really to really make sense of it. Um, and of course, you know, color photography becomes significant artistically when, when photographers start understanding color as constitutive of the world. It's not an addition to the world out there. It is, it's what makes up the world somehow. I doubt, I doubt I've answered that question, but that's a very comp that is a very very complicated question. But it strikes me, Ansi, that you've got something in the back of your mind about this. You sounded a bit sounded a bit irritated. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> um, because even language, for that matter, uh, you're saying overpainted. So um, yeah, uh, versus to a painted photography, overpaint sounds like uh, what Roland Barthes would say. Because yeah. for that, for for that, for Roland Barthes, it's it's uh, the pure form of photography is uh, the best format, actually. Um, what he would say, so he would use the word overpaint rather than painted photography, yeah. see, or hand colored yeah. photography. Yeah. So in that in that manner. Yeah. yeah. I remember. But no, I I I enjoyed yeah. your talk. I I loved it. Uh, thank you so much for that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, you were saying something. Yeah, sorry. No, I was just, I, I, um, I published a, converse, a long conversation with Stephen Shaw and he told me that he once met the photographer Paul Strand and Paul Strand had said, higher emotions cannot be communicated in colour, which is such a stupid thing to say. <laughs> you know, say that to Kandinsky or, or Georgia O'Keeffe. Or like, why would you say something so ridiculous? And it's, it comes out of it comes out of uh, the fact that you know black and white photography preceded color, and then when color came out and was a part of mass culture, it was to do with consumerism and advertising, and so-called serious art photographers had decided that uh, seriousness could only be. <laughs> Could only be black and white. It's ridiculous. Photographers say so, that the craziest that, thing. <laughs> yeah, actually, that came up during our discussion uh, a few book groups back. We were talking about documentary reconsidered, and this idea of you cannot, uh, in photojournalism, uh, uh, manipulate a photograph. But frankly, uh, black and white making a photograph black and white is a manipulation of the actual entity that you're looking at. So. We're talking slippery slopes here because, I mean, yeah. there's a, yeah, yeah. Do we have another question? I know we're running over, but I'd love to take one if there's another. 
Yes, Rich. Uh, hi, Sibylla, and hi, uh, David. Fascinating conversation. Um, really makes me want to read this book, but I I, uh, I haven't read it yet, and I, I've seen it on the shelf, and I've wanted to buy it, but I know you just mentioned, uh, we were talking about Bard and, and Camera Lucida, which I've tried to read several times, and I just cannot get through it. Um, That's all right. It's, it's, I find it, I'll put my uh, camera on too, I find it uh, too dense, and I feel like I lack some art theory, psychology theory uh, information to understand it, and I found that in a couple of uh, photography books. There's another one um, by Berger, which I've tried to read and I can't. Um, ways of Seeing. Yeah, yeah, no, no, Ways of Seeing I loved. It was, um, oh, what's the other one? Maybe it's not Berger, sorry. It's Over Seeing here. Photographs or something like that. Uh -huh. um, and I'm just wondering, um, uh, having not read your book, will I find the same <laughs> with your book? Do I need no. a lot of art? Is it accessible? Is it? Beyond accessible. Sorry to cut right. you off, Rich. Beyond right accessible. That's exactly it. Which is like, frankly, I love Bart. I'm a punctum junkie. I know and that. Believe about me, you, yeah. you need to read it. You know, there's no way you can read Bart without reading the same sentence several times. However, that is not the case in here, which is what was so genius about it. And, and also, um, semi-frustrating in the sense that it's like, I wanted to go, like, first of all, I've never met David, but it was also like, wait a minute, like, how much have you, like, how old are you? I asked him, the first time I talked to him, I asked if he slept, because it's like, how did you get all this knowledge? Then how did you integrate it? And then how did you give it to me? Pithy, funny, fascinating, curious. Uh, I mean, one of my questions when I had my list was going to be like, okay, when did you learn of the flying tailor? Or when you talked about um, Moybridge killing his wife's lover, inventing the zoo praxiscope in 1879 and retiring to gardening. Like that's the kind of stuff you get in the middle of everything else. So you're constantly, so sorry, I jump in. This is no, why no, introducing him was so hard because it was like, oh my God, how do you talk about this? Because it was so masterfully done to be so accessible. So Rich, well, first of all, you're gonna have to like, it, it, you cannot sit down and read this book at once, nor would you want to. I mean, you could, but it's gonna take a while, but it is, you're gonna come back to it, both for the visual and the written, honestly. So sorry, right. I totally cut you off. Please no, go no, ahead no. and ask what else you want to No, do. that was perfect. I'd like, uh, to, I'd like to hear David's uh, comment too, but uh, thank you, Sib, that was great. To your, to your point, Rich, there's, uh, I wouldn't, I, I'm not in the business of castigating any writer for the way that they write. Um, and I, uh, I'm not such a fan of Camera Lucida. Ansi brought it up actually, not me, uh, <laughs> that, that Bart's book. Uh, although I read it and I know it, and um, but I came into photography uh, at a point where it was becoming institution. The discussion of it was becoming institutionalized, kind of within the academy, and it's it was quite clear that there there was a lot of very advanced writing 
which probably didn't have a particular eye on uh, a, a wide audience or, or a wider audience. And, and that's fine. Um, but at the same time, I saw that the, the wider public discussion was getting really dumbed down into kind of pretty stupid journalism. So the field, when I came into writing, was either, was either over-specialized or, or kind of stupid and over-generalized and not very thoughtful. And so it was a political act, gesture on my part, to be one of the kinds of people who spends their time reading those difficult texts <laughs> and spending the time crafting, finding a way to write where the, the challenge is to get very complex ideas across as simply as possible without simplifying them, without, without selling them out without being a kind of chummy, I'll be your guide to this difficult field, but saying this is complex, it's rich and fascinating, and this is my best attempt to communicate that. And I know there, I mean, I've, I've, I was in academia for a long time, I still have a foot in academia, and I have academic friends who don't quite trust my writing because it's very accessible. <laughs> And uh, conversely, I don't really fit in with those kind of chummy populist uh, writers on photography. But that that was a decision I took. That was that was absolutely politically strategic on my part. But I, that I, it just looked it just the 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 way the field looked to me when I came into it. It it just seemed really dysfunctional. It was either over-specialized and kind of impenetrable or even access, even inaccessible, you know, mm -hmm. kind of belonged entirely to the academy or it was this kind of dumb populism. Mm. Um, and I've kind of tried to sail a difficult, difficult path uh, between them. Whether it's successful or not, I've, I've no idea, but that's, uh, that, was the, that was the goal I set myself. Um, I, I do think it is accessible. Can we take one more question? Are you good with that, David? Yeah, go on. Okay, um, Lee Kilpatrick. Hey there. Unmute. Go ahead. Hi. Hi there. Um, I didn't. I wasn't able to get into the first part of the discussion, so I don't know if this was talked about earlier. But I was wondering how you came up with the sequence of the book. Um, was it more based on the concepts, based on the photos? Was there any particular um, reason for it or? Yeah, we discussed that earlier, Lee. Oh, sorry, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I can watch we, the recording. <laughs> yes, yes, we, we hit our 100, I think, and that's why you couldn't get in. Yeah, um, one right, of the right. things that came up in the chat is, um, uh, Mary Virginia Swanson was mentioning Odette England's book, which is also one that we did cover in the photo book book group, which looks at Roland Bart. It was on the anniversary, the 40th anniversary of Camera Lucida. It's called Keeper of the Hearth, yeah. uh, picturing uh, Roland Bart's unseen photograph, because, of course, 
I have he a picture in it. Put it. You do. Yes. Yes. Do you know what page? I'll pull you up. No idea. <laughs> How would I know that? <laughs> I don't know. Some people do know their page. Um, I, I should be. I should say that. Um, uh, let me find. Go ahead. I can't remember. I had to reread the book for this talk, Sibylla, because I tend to writing a book is a little bit like filling up a hard drive for me you know once mm -hmm. full, you unplug it and you free up more space got that mm -hmm. i have writer friends who can remember and mm -hmm. artist friends who can remember everything that they did and where it appears and i i can't i was giving a talk in in toronto not long ago about an exhibition that i'd curated there and in the q a at the end of uh, a very serious woman stood up and um, she read out a paragraph of something and then kind of took issue with it and said, well, what do you think of that? And I, <laughs> I said, I don't know, it sounds kind of interesting. And she said, well, you wrote it. And I was kind of taken aback. She said, yeah, it's from a book you wrote called Photography and Cinema. And I barely, I barely recognized it. And I, I feel really, I feel really bad about this, that I, that I don't, I don't retain, in my head, the things I've written, because they're out there. So I don't have to, mm -hmm. they just mm -hmm. belong to whoever. Oh yeah. There you are. That's it. Mm -hmm. But that, that actually makes a lot of sense in the sense, uh, because um, it's like you till something and then you, you put it on its path and, and I, and, and you move on, um, which is, which yeah. is, which is amazing, uh, yeah. Because otherwise, you would you you need a delete button. You've got a lot of words and thoughts that have been yeah shared with the world. So well, there's yeah. something else. I'm sure there's something else psychological going on about that, which I, which I can't. I mean, there are, I know I know other writers that are also quite productive, and they they can remember. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think maybe. One of the reasons, no, uh, well, I was going to say just one of the reasons why your book so blew me out of the water is that I think about a lot of the issues that you raised and I struggle to um, clarify them on the level that you do. So like I was excited because you're talking about them, but then you would like hit me because you were so clear on it. And it was like, oh, like, ha like that is like climbing Everest. It's like, I've got to weed through things more and, and you have a much wider grasp of what you're pulling from. So um, yeah, that's why I thought more so amazing. And this this is something that comes from Bart, but less less to do with his writings on photography. Mm -hmm. I am of the view that once you once you've made something, once you've done something and it's out there in the world, it really isn't yours anymore. It, it mm. belongs. It belongs to whoever. I mean, can you imagine a musician kind of saying, no, that's not how you're supposed to listen to my music or what it's about? Or, you know, because people feel music so personally, even if they think that they're identifying with the maker of it, they don't know the maker of it. They're just, it's part of how they, 
part of how culture is uh, enjoyed and kind of incorporated into your into your life so once it's out there it's it's out there and it's uh, it belongs to whoever. well it goes back to for me young um well and and it's collective right it becomes part of our collective consciousness uh, in a way that we don't have ownership. I've we've got one last question here coming up from the chat that said, could you explain the hyphen on the cover between photo and graphs? No, no, as a graphic designer. Uh, I, didn't insist, I, I didn't insist on the hyphen. It's peculiar, isn't it? Looks I actually nice. didn't didn't think about it till that person asked that question it's but yeah quite, it's actually quite an extensive hyphen as well i don't uh, a long one yeah i don't mm -hmm. know it's very modern mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> i don't know i hope it doesn't put you off ellen <laughs> no not at all i just i was wondering if it was if it was intentional intentional or, or it was i mean it to make us think about uh graphing and photographs or the work or the yes um, those yeah photos. yeah if i was if i was sensible like that's the answer i would give that it that the hyphen uh etymologizes that it takes us back to the roots of the word thank uh, you of light and writing yes thanks ellen if i do another one of these talks i'll, I'll bear that in mind <laughs> that's great oh my gosh oh david this is just a treat and a half i um i i, I wrote to someone uh jenny holder and said that i have been um eating this book for breakfast lunch and dinner um and i have and it's been so wonderful to 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 be in there and that's why i had to tease you at the beginning of it being this little idiosyncratic book because it's quite you know, it it is so expansive, so generous, um, such a translation, uh, room for everyone, and really opening up this idea of the creative process being um, honored, respected, um, and encouraged for the artist to, to not be listening to the cacophony of good, better, best, or did you see so-and-so, um, but to really be in it for your exploration and your own refinement. I, I remember um, I had this serendipitous meeting um, at the last Paris photo with um, Hassan Hajaj, who was at MEEP for that particular um, uh, time and and had the whole museum. I, for one, have followed his work for a while and love it. And what's really fascinating is that people either love it or hate it. Mm -hmm. Like there is no in between. And what was so fun when I uh, was able to meet him is he is completely aware of that and has absolutely no problem. It's like that's not he's pleasing himself. He's exploring on his own. Um, and people respond. It, it 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 it's really about the conversation with your work. So yeah. anyway, I I think, I think all good work is uh, for anyone, but it's not for everyone. Correct. 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 Yes. And yeah, I think being brave. I love that you brought up that those women, those women at that between the wars time, were not afraid of the wildness. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking as a woman and the idea that you do give birth to those uh, in inconsistent manifestos um, means that we very much know that on a bodily visceral level. So perhaps that's why, but Good. I love that you pulled that out. This has been delightful. I thank you. Thank you for your time. You. Um, and we will follow up with the people who have, um, uh, were participants with a thank you letter. Um, and I summarize and give the other resources that we've kind of brought up in here, um, to circle back. And we put the, um, the recording on the, on my website. So, Great. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. It's right. always hard to stop. And if anyone wants to, to unmute and applaud, I will. <laughs> thank you.